Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1 to 2, and 13 to 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you once again today. We commit ourselves to come under the authority of your word, to be directed and guided and encouraged and challenged and convicted by your spirit. And we ask you, God, that today we would just truly behold your glory in a new way. Lord, I ask you that today you would instruct us in our hearts how to live our lives in a way that you would be just magnified among us. Our, our goal, Lord, would be that many people in this city would encounter you through our relationships. And so we ask you today that you would use this text to strengthen us to that end. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we continue on in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which I've said many times is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. This is Jesus' sermon as he sits down on the mount, begins to teach the disciples and those who are gathered in the crowd around. And what we see in this text and the verses that you have just heard is that Jesus is creating for himself a new community who are called to live out their new identity in all of life, and that when they do, that people around will respond and glorify God. That's the essence of the text. Jesus is creating for himself a new community, and he's giving to that new community a new identity, and the new identity, when it's lived out, will cause others to glorify our Father in heaven. And he shows us that this new identity is a new community. He shows it to us by using two images, two metaphors. He says that the new community he's creating will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he's telling us that this new community, he's telling us what we will be like. Those of us who follow Jesus, he's telling us what we'll be like, what we're called to, how we respond out of our new identity, what that looks like, and how all of this is really a response to the gospel of the kingdom that he's been preaching, the good news of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming. So at this point in Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus has begun his public teaching. He's begun preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's called some disciples to follow him, his first disciples he calls. And then he goes around preaching. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that, and that basically means turn away from what you are focused on and turn away from your old identity and turn and come to him and receive that new identity of who you truly are. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Realign your life with the way of the kingdom of God. Realign every area of your life with the way of the kingdom of God, and you will receive the, the, the values that he's giving to live by, but you also receive with it those promises of who he says you are as you come to him. So Jesus is arriving, and he's saying, look, I know, I know that the world is a broken mess. I know that your relationships are actually distressed. I know that the purpose that you're living your life for is confusing, and sometimes it seems like it's, it's not a whole lot more than basically just trying to accumulate enough that you can rest easy, that you'll be taken care of forever. And he's saying, if that's kind of where your life is grounded, and that's the fullness of what you understand your 
purpose to be. I'm showing you a new way to be human. Jesus comes and says, I'm showing you a new way to be alive. I'm showing you a new way to live, and I'm giving you a new goal that you can live toward. He's showing you a new end, and he's saying, why don't you come along, and I'll show you what it looks like. That's what Jesus is doing as he enters in to preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And then in this text that we're looking at today, I want us to look at it by seeing that the gospel creates first a new kind of community. The gospel creates a new kind of community. Second, the gospel creates people who live as salt of the earth. And third, as light of the world. As the light of the world. The gospel creates a new kind of community who understand themselves to be the salt of the earth. And third, as the light of the world. And you say, what do you mean by a new kind of community? Well, Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14. Just look at them very quick. The beginning of verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. And then verse 14 says, you're the light of the world. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I want you to notice something that that maybe some of you are aware of, but maybe others of you are not. I want you to notice that the word you that begins verse 13 and 14 is a plural you. And it's an emphatic you. It's a plural you, meaning a crowd, y'all who are disciples, you all who follow me, plural you, and it's emphatic in the sense that he says, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. He says, other people may think they have light, that other people may think they are salt, but Jesus is saying, you and you alone who follow me are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You as a community are the salt and light. So he's saying this community is his. It's a particular community that he has called It's a particular community that belonged to him. And then he also says, and this this new community, and at the risk of sounding foolish, I want to say this new community is a community. The new community, I know you came here for deep knowledge today. This new community of Jesus followers is a community. He's not talking about individuals here. He's talking about a community of people who have been transformed by the gospel message and have received a renewed sense of identity in him in so much as they are now seen to be salt and light. And he calls this new community a city on a hill. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So you as an individual... You can't be the light of the world. Because you, as an individual, can't be a city. You, collectively, are the light of the world. You, collectively, followers of Jesus, are a city set on a hill. Our gospel, the gospel that Jesus brings to us, which we have received, is a gospel that creates a new kind of community. Um, Eugene Peterson, who is one of my favorite authors, has said one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We, instead of I, our, instead of my, and us, instead of me. It's a grammatical shift, and that kind of shift in language changes the entire culture of the community that we find ourselves a part. God never intended his people to function as 
sort of an individualized, in, in an individualized, isolated way, and then, and then for individuals to try and go out and do and produce the fruit that we see coming with the gospel and produce what really can only be produced by living as a new kind of gospel community. Jesus has never called us as individuals to go out and flourish and be fruitful on our own. He's called us to flourish and be fruitful as a community. And so if you're isolating yourself as a follower of Jesus and you're going like, I don't have that kind of joy that the scripture talks about. I don't have that kind of, uh, that kind of fruit in my life. I don't have that kind of evidence in my life that I'm being transformed and changed. I don't see that my evangelism is really that effective, but I don't see, and you, just, you can go through all the list. If you think you're able to accomplish all those things on your own as an individual, you'll forever be frustrated because you're not called to accomplish all of those things on your own. We are called to accomplish them as his new community. There's something profound about seeing the way that the gospel takes hold and shapes us as a new community. Again, Eugene Peterson, the gospel is never for individuals, but always for a people. Sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. Gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. So the you in Jesus' sermon is a plural you, and when we learn the gospel is not just shaping me, but it's actually shaping us, we recognize that we become a new kind of city on a hill. Okay, the, the text does not say you're the light of the world, you're like an individual standing with a flashlight on a hill. That's not what it says. It says you're a city on a hill, you cannot be hidden. The collective light of Jesus' people is like a city on a hill. It's a, it's a new city. The Greek word behind the word city is polis. You know that from metropolis. Metropolis. Metropolis just means mother city. It means the big area from where everything else is coming. It's a new kind of city that Jesus is creating. A new city that's alive with a new identity and a new way of being in the world. And it's a new kind of community that only the gospel can create. It is different than every other kind of community that you can find yourselves a part of. In our world today in Vancouver, that message that we're not primarily individuals and that we can't primarily understand ourselves as individuals, it's actually a challenging message to share. And, and one of the reasons I try and highlight this every time we're looking at a text and it's a plural you is because when you grab your Bibles and you read in English and it says you, you go me. You don't say us. I do the same thing. And I, I've trained myself to think this way. I'm like, is he talking to a crowd or to a person? Because if he's talking to a crowd, it's a collective you. If he's talking to a person, sure, it might be individual. But he's not called us to be individuals running around trying to do something. He's called us to be a community on mission. He's called us to be together in this, a new kind of city. We're so used to doing, in, in, our, in our age, in our culture, we're so used to doing what we want, when we want, the way we want, that any encroachment upon that freedom, it actually feels restrictive. And so when we preach about a community, some people go, sure, I like that. But the deep individualization in our culture is so ingrained in us that we don't respond as part of a community first we respond as individuals and then later second think about our communal belonging but the gospel beautifully draws us into a meaningful new community it's wonderful but at the same time the gospel challenges us then to deal with our hearts because being in community means that you have to value the opinion of another person being in community means that you need to allow others to speak into your life in a way that you may not be accustomed to. See, everybody wants community, right? The city of Vancouver spent millions of dollars doing studies. 
And what they found at the end of their studies is that everybody wants community. I say, thank you very much. That was a good study. Everyone wants community. But when you start talking about commitment, people go, ooh. Community, yes. Commitment, eh. See, we all want community, but when you start to talk about accountability that comes with it, you go, oh, no, 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 no. I am my own person. And some of you grew up in different backgrounds and different cultures that are far more familial and far more communal than some of us who grew up just straight up white bread Canadian, right? Our family did what was right for our family. We were very integrated with our extended family. But when it came right down to it, I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life, and I didn't particularly care what anybody else thought. That's a new kind of community that Jesus is bringing together. See, the kind of community that the gospel creates means I am not my own, and I no longer have a claim on my life because I am Christ's. I'm following him. And because I'm following Jesus, part of my new identity is in relation to his corporate people because we can serve him together in ways that we simply cannot serve him alone. Now, it doesn't mean that you lose your human agency. Calm down. You don't lose your human agency when you become a Christian. It just means that you submit your human agency to the higher authority of the way of Jesus. See, the idea of the autonomous, sovereign self is not an idea that you can find in the scriptures. It's just not. And you can't say, well, that's because 2,000 years ago, society was far more communal. No, no, I'm talking about a new kind of community that Jesus has created. The idea of autonomy as an individual is not congruent with the way of Jesus. The sovereign self who guides and governs and rules over all of life is not an idea that is congruent with the way of Jesus. If Jesus is Lord, that necessarily means I am not. So the message of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus came to establish a new kind of polis, a new kind of city, and that this new kind of city is actually going to look a little bit different and live by different values and different ethics, and it's actually going to have a different end goal in mind. And in some ways, the church that Jesus came to establish and the church of Jesus functioning today in the city of Vancouver and around the world actually acts a little bit like a city within the city. We're governed by a different set of ideals. Yes, there's the laws that have been legislated in the city and that we do our best to uphold them in every way that we possibly can if it's not in contradiction with the truth of God's word. We submit to the governing authorities. That's a scriptural mandate, definitely. But we exist as a city within a city. This is why you see uh, citizenship conversation through the New Testament. Citizenship was a big deal in the Roman Empire. And Paul goes up and says, we're not citizens of Rome or citizens of whatever. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's our primary citizenship. It's a conversation that goes on in our world as well. I don't find myself primarily as a Canadian. I find myself as a sojourner on the way, a child in the kingdom of God who happens to dwell in the city of Vancouver in Canada right now as I make my way home. My primary identity is not Canadian. My primary identity is kingdom. I happen to be Canadian. Do you see the inversion there? It reduces the individualistic impulse of our culture and puts us within a broader new kind of community, a city within a city, here and now in this moment in time. 
Now, Jesus is talking about an alternate human society. He's talking about a radical new countercultural community who are working out the implications of the gospel together, who are participating in this new life in Christ, who are not here to consume, but are here to contribute, who are not here to see what they can get, but see what they can give. They're looking to see what it looks like to experience the fullness of the kingdom of heaven here and now in Jesus' new city as a part of the broader city and how they can be salt and light people to the glory of God the Father who is in heaven. This is the passage we're looking at. The gospel creates first a new kind of countercultural community. And second, this new community understand themselves as being salt of the earth people. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Don't miss this little thing. It's a little thing, but it's important. He says it again in verse 14 too. He says, you are the light of the world. Jesus tells people who they are before he tells them what to do. And that's very important. If you flip that, you get some sort of legalistic nightmare. Jesus tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. And if you flip it the other way around and he says, here's what to do so that you can become who you are, you're now trying to earn a right standing before God on your own, and that is not in line with the gospel. Jesus tells us who we are, then he tells us how to live. He tells us who we are, then he tells us what to do. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you ought to be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. See, the blessings and the promises of the Beatitudes, they actually come before the commands in the rest of the Scripture. We just spent the last nine weeks looking at the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And then he comes to verse 13. You are. In verse 14, you are. He's telling you who you are before he tells you what to do. This is entirely different than most, I would say, all religious worldviews that we experience in our day. In some other religious worldviews, you need to become what you should be in order to be accepted. And Christianity is different. In Christianity, you are accepted not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus' performance for you. In Christianity, we become what we already are because we've already been accepted. But in other worldviews, you need to become what you should be in order to be accepted. And again, there's a massive difference there. In other religious worldviews, you need to earn a right standing before God so that you can then uh, receive the identity as an enlightened person or, or, or whatever it would look like. You need to earn that on your own. But in Christianity, you receive your identity first without earning, with no merit of your own, and then you live into it. And it changes it from a works-based righteousness, a works-based right standing before God where you have to earn and you have to be who you ought to be and then if you're good enough, you'll be accepted. In Christianity, it's the other way around. You receive by grace first this new identity and then you live into the new identity all the way through your life and everything that you do, but you receive the identity first and that makes it rather than a works-based legalistic nightmare, it turns into a grace-driven effort. You apply yourself because you've already received from God, not in the hopes that you one day will. It's a total flipping of religion on its head. And Jesus is showing us this by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You're not just justified by what you do and able to stand before God because of how well you've performed. You can stand before God by grace because of how Jesus performed for you. 
So again, Jesus tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. Look at verse 13. You are salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. All right, salt. So we're going to talk about salt, are we? Good morning, Jesus people. Anybody else watch any salt documentaries this week? Just me. Salt is a necessity of every household now as it was in the first century, but in the first century more so. Salt was used primarily uh, to preserve food. It was also used to season food. That's how we primarily use it now. But salt was used to preserve food. And again, at the risk of sounding foolish, I just want to remind you that they didn't have refrigerators. So if you got yourself some nice game that you went out and hunted because you like meat, it's all, no, never mind. As I do. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say as all good people do. And I was really wrong because you might not like meat and then I would offend you. I like meat. Let me just continue to dig myself out of that hole. Here we go. If you got some meat and you wanted to preserve it or you were a person who had a meat market and you were going to sell meat, you could have it and it was fresh that day and as long as it was consumed, totally fine. But if you couldn't consume it all in that moment, what you had to do was bathe it in a salt bath or rub salt into it and that's how you preserved it. You'd hang it up and you'd allow it to dry. This still happens around the world all over the place. If you've ever had beef jerky, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is going on all over the place. Salt is a preservative. Keeps things from rotting. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. If I'm honest, though, this passage has always confused me a bit because I've never known salt to lose its saltiness. Just look at this again. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, okay, it's not something I've ever experienced, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I'm a person who has vocationally studied the Bible for a long time, and I'm going to confess something to you today. I've always known there must be something to this verse, but I've kind of never cared enough to look. I've kind of always just gone, I trust that what Jesus said is right. There's probably a way salt can lose its saltiness. It's probably a first century reality, not a 21st century reality. And so here I am, 2,000 years later than Jesus, and I'm just going, look, Jesus, the salt I've had has always been salty. It's very stable mineral compound, sodium chloride, stable. Salt you have in your cupboard, it might go rock hard if you leave it there for a very long time, but it's still going to be salty, right? Like you would expect that it's going to maintain its saltiness. So there's something else going on here. And that sentence, though it doesn't make much sense to us on the surface, it does make a ton of sense to people who lived in first century Palestine. Okay, our salt, again, the chemical makeup of it is remarkably stable. It's not losing its saltiness. But that's because we have good refinement systems that they didn't use 2,000 years ago. Particularly if you talk about the salt that people used in the region near the Dead Sea. This is not that far away from where Jesus is teaching on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he's probably preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Just 100 miles south is the Dead Sea. It's dead because it's so salty. Now, in that sense, if you wanted to get a hold of some salt, and there were people who had this as their business, and, you know, enterprising entrepreneurs who said, I'm going to be the person who, who gathers and then sells and markets salt, you could go to the Dead Sea and you could collect white powder that was salty. And as you collected that white powder, you could then take it home and you could rub it into your meat and it would preserve the meat for a long time. You could add it to your food and it would season it and bring out the good flavors in the food itself. 
But what happened in that era, because the salt was also mixed with other minerals, is that you could have the salt actually dissolve or you could have the salt be washed out of that white powder that you had. And what you would be left with was a white powder that looked like salt but wasn't salty anymore. It was mixed with silicum and other things that would be in there that would look a lot like the salt, but it didn't have the taste. It's not the same mineral. And so you could have salt in your home that you were using, and then you taste it, and you go, it's lost its saltiness. It's literally worthless mineral that looks like salt, and the only thing you would do is take it outside and chuck it on the road. Look back at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that's the point Jesus is making. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. And it's the only time that it's good to be called salty, right? You know, you get made fun of and somebody doesn't like how you're responding. And my kids do this to me. And maybe it's because they're sassy teenage girls. I'm not sure. Like, don't be salty. Like, I am salty. Jesus says I'm salty. It's not, what, it's, not, it's not what they mean, and it's what Jesus means that matters. You are the salt of the earth. It's the, only, it's the only time it's good to be called salty. But if you're washed out, okay, if you lose your distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus, if you are in that sense mixed with other chemicals and you lose your saltiness and you retain the image of salt but are no longer salty, Jesus is saying you can't do what he's calling you to do and you can't be who you're called to be as it relates to the rest of the world around you. What he's saying is, is that you can't bring our, we as a community, a, a new countercultural community of Jesus cannot bring our distinctiveness as Jesus' people. We're no longer there to preserve. We're no longer there to season, to bring out Eugene Peterson's message translation because the God flavors in this world. We've lost our effectiveness. And Jesus says if we've lost our effectiveness and our distinctiveness, we're actually no longer good to anybody as salt of the earth. See, we don't serve the world around us by becoming like the world around us. We serve the world around us by maintaining the distinctiveness of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. We offer a countercultural, Christ-like community that seasons the world and in a certain sense brings a preservative element to its decay. So the gospel creates, first, a new kind of community. Second, that new kind of community is as the salt of the earth. And third, who are then the light of the world. Matthew 14, or Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We've already looked at that. A new city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Jesus tells us who we are before he ever commissions us for ministry in our world, in his kingdom. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. And he says, we are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. And he says, nobody's lighting a lamp and then covering it. Okay, just like in that ancient world, light is very important to every household. Just like salt being a necessity in every household, so is light. But what he's saying is, is when you walk into your house and turn the light switch on, you don't take the lamp, put it on the floor, cover it with a basket, and hope nobody sees it. 
and somebody comes in and says, turn the light on. You go, it is on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why our fixtures are on the ceiling. They're lifted up so that it might give light to all in the room. See, there's something happening. Light illuminates the way. It illuminates the way, the path. But it also exposes the darkness. See, tonight when you're getting ready to go to bed and you walk into a room and it's dark in there and you can't see anything and you flip the light on, boom, the darkness leaves. We are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You ever flown over communities? I mean, the, the community that I grew up in, or you look at satellite maps, you can Google a satellite map of, of, of British Columbia or whatever, and it shows it. And so where I grew up in Alberta, I'll just tell you, it's a very small community, and it doesn't show up from space. You have to look high resolution and zoom a long ways in before you can go, and there it is. And there, two miles north of town is where my friend's farm is. And, well, there's no light there. But I know he has a light on. No, we're a city set on a hill. Our light all pooled together is visible from outer space. It cannot be hidden. When you fly over the city of Vancouver and you're flying into the city of Vancouver, or you Google a satellite map of the city of Vancouver, you know where it is because it's lit. And you might know that there's farms and communities all around us. You might know where there are individual lights, but they're hidden. Jesus says, no, 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 nobody lights a lamp, changing the metaphor a little bit, and then covers it. We light a lamp and lift it up so that it would give light to all in the room. You know, all the way through the Old Testament, you can trace this line of how the people of God were called to be a light to the nations. And there were times when they did well and times where they did not do well. And then Jesus enters in, and in his incarnation and in his teaching, he actually comes and he says in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we who are the light that Jesus is speaking about, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. We need to take seriously our job to then shine his light and his truth into the world around us. And, and just like the metaphor of salt, what he's saying is that we can't bring our contribution as the light of the world if we try and hide the brilliance of Jesus shining through us. We can't be the light of the world and shine the light of Christ if we're hidden away and withdrawn. Right? We can't serve the world around us. We can't serve the darkness around us, if you could say it that way, by turning down the brilliance of that light that Christ is seeking to shine through you. We're no good to anybody if we go incognito. We're no good to anybody if we withdraw and cover our light so that we can fit in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who met his death at a Nazi concentration camp at the end of the Second World War, he said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Now let me try and draw salt and light together and, and, and bring these metaphors together. See, the countercultural community of Jesus' people are at the same time salt and light. And as the salt of the earth, we need to maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness. We can't get washed out. And as the light of the world, we need to engage the world around us in our Christ-like mission. We can't cover the light. 
As the salt of the earth, we need to maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness. And as the light of the world, we need to engage in our Christ-like mission. We've got both of these impulses in John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer, a whole chapter, where Jesus prays to the Father. And it's recorded for us for our edification, our learning, our teaching, that we might learn from him as, as he's teaching us in the way that he prays. But John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19 says, I have given them your word. Again, it's Jesus praying. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Hey, Jesus says something here. Have you ever heard the phrase, in the world, not of the world? We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. This is the essence of what he's getting at. He says we're not of the world in the same way as he is not of the world, meaning he's not conformed to it. Meaning the way that he lives is different than the world around him and is never going to be compromised because the way he lives is truth. So we're not of the world in the same way as he's not of the world. But then he says he wants us in the world in the same way as the Father sent him into the world. I think he's saying that he wants us to be a countercultural people, not a conformed people. And the language that we could use is two words that are helpful. Inculturated and enculturated. If I could speak better today, I could enunciate properly, but I can't, so I put them on the screen for you so you can see what I'm trying to say. Enculturated is a word that we get from the discipline of sociology. Enculturated has this idea of blending into the prevailing cultural moment, and, and you then take on the characteristics of the world around you. That's enculturation. But enculturation comes from the doctrine of the mission of God, from missiology. It's the study of God's mission. Enculturation is kind of like incarnation, where you speak the gospel in a way that people can hear it. So enculturations where you try and blend in no matter the compromises that you have to make, well, enculturations where you stand out, and in standing out, you try and bring the message of the gospel of Jesus to bear on a particular cultural moment. And I think it's right there that, that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be inculturated, but not enculturated. We're to be countercultural rather than conformed. I want to press it and just take it one step further. Not only are we the salt of the earth and, and we're called to try and maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness, which is what makes us different and, and useful to God in that sense of, of, of what makes us salty and useful. He's saying if you've lost your saltiness, uh, there's, it, it, there's nothing left. It's just sort of minerals that look like salt. But he's saying keep your distinctiveness. So we understand ourselves as the salt of the earth and as the light of the world, and we're trying to shine in a way that we can engage in Christ-like mission. John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. See, the Father did not send Jesus to blend in and conform to the prevailing culture of his day. The Father did not send Jesus to lose his distinctiveness. The Father sent Jesus to be holy and set apart and though he was tempted and tried as we are, he was without sin. The Father sent Jesus into the world to shine as a light, 
revealing and illuminating in the darkness that we should know how loved we are and how we can then be saved. That's how the Father sent the Son. Distinct and illuminating. That's what it means to be the countercultural community of Jesus' followers. We're, we're not to be of the world. We're called to be in the world. And I think even better is to say that we are not of the world, but we're sent into the world. We're not of the world, conformed to the ways of the world. We're sent into the world to stand out and be distinctive and shine light. The dual images of salt and light here in this text really portray two aspects of the Christian witness that are very difficult to balance. The two aspects are engagement and distinctiveness. Engagement and distinctiveness. See, to be salty doesn't mean you're legalistic and separated. That's not the way of Jesus. It means that we're called to be loving, yet distinct. We're called to live different. We're called to live different because we are different. To be light means that we don't hide away in fear. Simply, it means that we bring our saltiness on full display. We're letting the light of Christ shine in our lives. And you know, Jesus was a perfect example of both of these for us. He was uncompromising in the face of legalism. He was uncompromising in the face of lawlessness. He had come to be holy, and we're called to be holy as he is holy. We're called to be distinct in this world, but we're still called to be in it. Not separated from, different than, but sent into. Scott McKnight says this text encourages us to reimagine our role in the world as God's agents of redemption. This is who he's called us to be, as salt and light. And the, go- <clears throat> the gospel creates a new kind of countercultural community. It secondly calls us salt of the earth, and the gospel transforms us to be light of the world. And then the gospel totally rewires our motives. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the good works we're called to do, this is mercy, this is justice, this is caring for those who no one else cares for, this is valuing those who others discard, this is making arguments for life at beginning and end and all the way through the middle of life. This is all of those things that that we would want to do as good works that would display the love of God and the transforming power of the Spirit in our lives. But really all that we're doing when we do those good works is living in line with who we already are. Just living it out. In the everyday stuff of life, it's being a good husband, a good wife, it's being a good single person. It's being a good uncle and aunt, it's being a good kid. It's learning what it means, not good in the sense of some sort of moral obligation, it's learning what it means to follow the way of Jesus in every area of your life, in the totally normal mundane stuff like we talked about last week. It's not the person who cuts corners at work. You want to be distinctive in your workplace? Make sure that you don't cheat. That speaks volumes to people who just try to get ahead. There's lots of ways to be distinctive and not legalistic and separated. The reason we can do that is because the motives of our heart have been changed. We are transformed in the sense that we want our good works to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And those good works cannot be only those things that we do, good deeds in that sense. They also need to include the way that we proclaim the message of what we believe. So you cannot separate the great commandments of Jesus to love God and love people 
from the great commission of Jesus to make disciples and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't separate those. You don't get to be one of those who is like, well, our church is really a love God and love people church, and so we don't do a whole lot of the proclaiming stuff. We're all about love, 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 love. We just don't want to say a lot of things. We don't want to say things. People don't like it. We talk about sin, they just don't like it, so we just don't say anything. But we love and love and love and love and love and love. Okay, that's, we need that. You also don't get to be the church who's like, well, you know what, we're not really worried about the hunger of people. We have traveled the world so that we can preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. I don't care how hungry they are. What they need to hear is that they can be satisfied with that heavenly food. You're like, you know what, maybe they would listen to you if their stomach wasn't empty. You can't separate the great commandment from the great commission. And anytime you try to do it, you get a hybrid mess. It doesn't work. You don't get to be all proclaiming and you don't get to be all lovey. In fact, you need both of them to do either of them. The only way you can rightly love God and love people is to obediently preach the word. The only way that you can rightly preach the word is when it's lined up with the way you live or it's evident that you love God and people. You need both. The motives of our heart get transformed. Look at verse 16, though, because this text is all about the motivation. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Right? Now, if I don't say this now, you're going to wonder what happened in a few weeks when we come back to this in Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for they will have, you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You go, well, which one's true? Both. They're not contradicting each other. On the surface, it may appear that way, but I want us to highlight this. Look at verse 16 again, Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Look at 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order that you be seen. One motivation sees glory going to our Father who is in heaven. The other sees that glory going to the individual who does the good work. That is a totally different way of looking at things. And the only way that you can live with a gospel motivation is to know that you have already been accepted. That you don't have to earn it. And that you don't need a pat on the back from somebody else around you signifying that you are a person who has arrived. The only way that you can live with a gospel motivation to see God glorified even if you're not is if you know that your identity is so secure in Christ that you are salt, that you are light. And once you've received that identity, you don't have to prove yourself. So you don't need to run around practicing your righteousness before others so that you can be seen. You can run around doing good works, hoping that they see your Father in heaven. A totally transformed motive. When the gospel shapes your heart, you don't care if anybody notices how amazing you are. When the gospel shapes your heart, you hope that they see how amazing God is. And the only way that you can live with that single-minded motivation is to see that your identity is secure in him. See, the gospel creates a new countercultural community. The gospel creates people who live as salt of the earth and light of the world, and they have that single-minded motivation that through their saltiness and their light-bearing work, that God might be seen as he is and that people might turn and receive what he has promised them. This is the message of the Sermon on the Mount you stand as we respond today thanks for listening for more information about christ city church in vancouver please visit christcitychurch.ca 
We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.